0: Uh, Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 11, and we'll finish chapter 11 tonight. We'll be reading verses uh, 24 through 31. I get the teens here tonight, you know, youth leadership is home, hopefully watching online. It's good to have the online stuff because we've got people out of town, we've got people sick. Thanks for joining us. We probably have more of you online than here tonight. That's just... uh, The nature of the way it's been uh, lately, but uh, if your Bibles are open, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can get one in your hand, and uh, Proverbs 11 should be marked. And I'll be reading uh, just. I'll start with reading just verses 20 through uh, 24 through 26, and then we'll uh, go through the other verses um, as we go here. Starting with verse uh, 24, Proverbs chapter 11. There is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich. He who waters will also be watered himself. The people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Let's pray. Lord, we just gather here tonight. We're thankful that you brought us here, Lord. We, we see the things that take place around the world and, and just uh, every day, Lord, Uh, There are so many things that could snuff the life out of each and every one of us, Lord, but by your grace, you've kept us here, and you've kept us here for a purpose and for a reason. Uh, Lord, it's not uh, just that we would live our lives and and, uh, just try and accomplish things and be done, but Lord, it's to be a light and a witness for you, to bring glory and honor to your name, to point people that are still in darkness to you. And we just pray that as we open your word, Lord, you would just reveal these things to us, things that maybe we haven't thought of in quite some time, things that maybe you've spoken to us recently and you want to confirm again here tonight. Uh, We just pray, Lord, that the Spirit would have his will and his way. And each of us, Lord, we would not only have hearing ears, but uh, obedient ears, Lord, ready to do that which you call us to do. And it's for your glory and our blessing. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, we have these introductory verses, and you, you, you probably noticed that they have something to do with giving. And giving is like prayer in this sense. Giving doesn't, just like prayer, prayer doesn't change God. It changes us. Giving doesn't change God. It changes us. Giving or prayer... Doesn't add anything to God. Would you agree with that? We add nothing to God with the millions upon millions upon millions of prayers that are prayed. We add nothing to his character. We add nothing to his holiness. We add nothing to his storehouse. Giving adds nothing to God. Might as well be molecules that we can't see, touch, taste, or smell. He already has everything. But giving, just like prayer, does add to us. It doesn't bring victory or peace or perspective or newfound joy to God. Right? Our giving doesn't add peace to God. God doesn't say, wow, whew, I can sleep well tonight. Thanks that so-and-so gave. Doesn't add anything to God. But all those things and many more are added to our life with giving. This is what Solomon's writing about. Now to be clear, the Scriptures show us that God is well-pleased when we give. He's well-pleased when we pray. And when we learn to commit to giving and generosity, but the benefits are not to God, the benefits of obedience come to us. That's what is said here. Said very clearly, the one who scatters, it increases more. The generous soul will be made rich. And this is what Solomon lays out in these remaining, verse, remaining eight verses. So there's eight verses here that we just read three. We have five more to read uh, this evening. Uh, four of these eight verses directly deal with possessions and financial resources. Four of the eight deal directly with possessions and financial resources, either freely giving them Or trusting in them and withholding them. It's either releasing them or holding on to them. The other four verses of the eight contrast other areas of obedience and surrender uh, to God versus rebellion and refusal to follow the commands of God. In other words, in life, if we have a life that's given over to God, and if we have a life that's if you have a life given over to God, you have one outcome that can be expected, and you have a life given over to ourselves that'll have a different outcome that can be expected. And this is what is contrasted here. If you're taking notes this evening, the title of our study is The Impact of Giving. And starting with the resources and the finances and the blessings God's entrusted us with, that's the opening. Of these verses, but the wider context is not just about the financial giving and the resources that God's given it. The wider context is the giving of our lives, the giving of our lives to God, and the impact of what God does with obedience mixed with faith. And you, you might know that scripture obedience mixed with faith. What happens when our life is fully given over to the Lord? And we want to look at. Um, the first thing, if you can uh, pull up my first slide here. Uh, you might have to skip that. Just skip that one, that's coming Tuesday. There we go, the impact of giving. Those who, uh, those who love God, and, and if you say, well, I think I love God. I want to love God. I am one of those that love God. Those who love God will invariably, and again, this is if a person really loves God, and God is the one that searches hearts and minds, he searches your heart and mind to determine, do we really love him, and to bring us that place of really loving him. But those who love God will invariably be givers and will love others. It may not happen immediately, but invariably it will happen. Those who love God will be givers, and they will love other people. And it won't be a grudging type of giving. All right, I'll give. I'll give because the pastor said it again. First of all, I don't go around saying it unless we're in the text. But the type of giving will be done with sincere joy, real joy. Amy Carmichael said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Yeah, there are people that can give without loving. There's plenty of people that have thrown something in the Salvation Army thing, or they've wrote, stroked a big check and they're a billionaire. and They've got a wing of the hospital named after them. And I'm not saying that all of those uh, motives are, are bad motives. There might have been some good in those motives, but uh, it's true, you can certainly give without loving. But you can't love without giving. For followers of Christ, giving becomes like breathing. Because Christ. Is a gracious giver and he breathed into us. So once he breathes into us, we take on his character, we take on his DNA, if you will. Our flesh might very well tell us at times we've already given enough. We can tell ourselves that in a lot of ways. I've already given out, I don't got anything left in the tank. By the way, there's a verse for that. His strength is made perfect in weakness. You remember the widow, prophet comes to her, she's got nothing left. God says, keep pouring it for him. What? That makes no sense. She kept pouring it, and the oil kept being there. No matter how many times she poured it, the oil was always there. Why? Because God is the giver to us. Now, Our flesh might tell us we've done enough, but Christ and the Scriptures will remind us not to buy that lie. Don't buy the lie we've given enough. Giving is a lifelong cycle, just like spring, summer, fall, winter. Next year, it'll be spring, summer, fall, or winter. The year after that, spring, summer, fall, winter. Giving is a, li- it's a lifetime. We actually will grow, just like we'll grow spiritually uh, in other areas, prayer, love, faith, we'll grow in this as well. Uh, it's part of our walk with the Lord, and it's part of a walk of faith. And by the way, I've not met, I've been saved since 1995. 1995. Since 1995 when I came to know the Lord, I've met a lot of believers since then. I've yet to meet um, a down and miserable person who loves to give. Haven't met one yet. I have not yet met someone who loves to give that is down and miserable. Quite the opposite. Uh, those who really love giving are the happiest people I've met. They're just, they have a joy that is contagious. Now, I wouldn't know they were givers. I first meet them just as joyful. Later, I see the other aspects. They're giving with their time. You can't, they're not whiners about it, like, well, I already did this, I already did. They're like, how can I help? What can I do? Because they really see themselves as servants of the Lord. So they, they're, they're empty. Paul said he was poured out like a drink offering. It's just the way he, he had come to realize that he didn't belong to himself anymore. The Bible says we're bought with a price. But yet, that's where the joy is. Jesus said, I've come that your joy might be full. The more yielded you are, the more joy you'll have. This is what is said here as well. And yet the one who scatters, scatters themselves, not just their money, but scatters themselves will, will actually increase. And, uh, but this principle of giving, it's found throughout the scriptures. In Ecclesiastes 11.1, 1, Ecclesiastes 11.1 1, says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. The more you cast it out, God says, it will come back, but sometimes after many days. A lot of times people don't want to wait many days. I want, I want God's blessing to come as soon as I give it. I want to be able to go straight to my smartphone and see the result. But that's not the way the Christian life works. not the way it works in any spiritual discipline. After many days, you're going to find it. Because your roots are going deeper and deeper and deeper, and your tree gets larger, and you actually can provide more shade because the Lord does that work. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, but this I say. Now Paul's like, hey, you you can either take this and run with it, or you can reject it. But here's the here's the truth from the Holy Spirit. Paul said, This is straight from the mouth of God. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Paul's like, This is this is what I found. You can't outgive God. You really can't outgive God in any in any capacity. Uh, for the children, the people of God, a clenched fist will never see. The blessings of God It's just never going to see. I'm not giving this up. This belongs to me. Now, if someone thought, uh, if someone throughout their life, now, you, you've met people that aren't even believers that, that have done really well for themselves, right? So they must be getting the blessing of God. Well, not, not the case, right? If someone amasses possessions and they amass success and riches and they accumulate uh, all kinds of things without ever being generous, and being giving, well, that's a different problem, isn't it? That's, a, that's identified in verse 28. We'll get there in just a few minutes. That, that problem's identified, too. Those who trust in riches. And, and there's people that name the name of Christ that uh, uh, withhold, and, and they really uh, are stingy and stubborn with what they have. That individual may want to really examine their real relationship with the Lord. If, if they it, To whom... Christ has given, will say, Lord, now I, you've given to me, I will now go give. It's just that relationship that God has established with us that we become his sons and daughters. We we become stewards of his kingdom. That's what we are. But God expects his sons and daughters to be givers, and uh, there's... I know there's additional reasons, but I want to, we have five fingers on our hands. I have five reasons I want to leave with you tonight. So if you can pull that up, I have five reasons I want to go through. Five reasons that we will be givers if we're really the sons and daughters uh, of God. And here's five primary reasons. They're not uh, again, there's additional reasons. Uh, you could say, I, I thought of a couple others, that's fine. But these are the, uh, in, in my Christian walk over the years, these are the five primary reasons as I really study through this. So what are the five primary reasons that me as a, as a child of God, why I would be giving and walking out what Solomon's writing here? Number one is obedience, obedience to God's will. Now, if God says to give, we don't really even need to understand the command to actually say, those of you in the military, you understand. It kind of works like this. Right? Hey, uh, uh, I'll do that, but I need a whole lot more information. That's not required by God. Sometimes in the scriptures, he gives a lot of information. Sometimes he just simply says, do it. Now, you as parents, you understand that uh, there's times where there's no time to explanation. It's an urgent situation. So the command has to be followed quickly. But number one, just obedience, saying, Lord, you're God, and if this is what you've asked me to do, uh, then I'll do it. So, number one, being obedience. Number two, and again, back with number one as well, we, we want to, at obedience, is we have a desire to please the Lord. That, that's the desire in obedience, is the Lord, we want to please you. That we're not trying to earn his salvation or anything. It's just, we want to please. We've already been saved. This is, I want to please you now. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, The second one is understanding. Now, thankfully, even though God does demand obedience, he loves us enough that he has explained it. And here is the explanation book. Would you agree? It's not like he hasn't given us things we can understand. He's given us things we understand. Now, that's why the scriptures say, study to show thyself approved unto God. You have to study these things. Say, Lord, if, if I want to grow as a giver, is there things in the word that could be spoken on this? Well, of course, there's a lot. From Genesis to Revelation, there's a lot to be said about this. So we have a lot that we can understand. And when I, th- when I speak of understanding, it's that how God's economy works. Um, Jesus you know, said, if the seed goes into the ground and dies, it'll bear much fruit. Um, dying to ourselves is the way God reshapes us, completely remakes us. That's just the work that he does. He, he's not interested in the person we used to be. He's not. So I was like this when I was 22 and unsaved. Right? He, he's, he's completely eliminated that. All right. Now you still will have the same looks and features and everything. Well, with age. But other than that, right? He's remaking us into his image. Well, and he has a way that things work. And when it comes to uh, the way giving is, is, is kind of described all throughout the Scriptures, you know, we see, remember Jesus gives the story of the, the, the Samaritan. He stops. He helps. But you have the really... Quote unquote, righteous people, they weren't going to give their time or their money. Mm-mm, they were too busy. They didn't have time to help that man. I don't even know who he is. He speaks a different language. He's dirty. He probably got himself into crime. That's probably why he was robbed anyway. Right? But the Samaritan says, Hold on. God's been gracious to me. Whatever he needs, check him into the hotel, check him in the hospital. I'm here to help. Bandage him up, put him on a donkey, and Jesus said, "My servants will be like this because the, the way God works is He wants us to reflect His character. That's the bottom line. We have to reflect His character." The other thing about financial giving, and this is this text, is really not as much about, although it certainly has um, a correlation to first fruit giving, which involves tithes and offerings. Uh, But the way God's economy works is the children of God support the work of God. God doesn't ask the unsaved world. We're not doing campaigns to get the unsaved world. Hey, can you help us get the gospel out? They don't want to do that work. So it's the children of God that do the work of God. Israel... Their gifts supported the temple. Their gifts supported the tabernacle. Their gifts supported the Levites, not other countries. It wasn't like Egypt was sending in a check to support the tabernacle. It was the 12 tribes, right? The 12 tribes were responsible for the work of the Lord. Solomon, David, they were the ones that God said build a temple. Not, yeah, make sure that all these other places get in on it. Now, if they wanted to follow the true and living God, they certainly could have helped, but the responsibility has always been with the family of God, and so that is how it works in the family of God. It's a family. Your family is responsible for you. You don't ask your neighbors to pay your bills, right? So you understand scripturally that the family of God is supported, the work of God and the family of God is supported in the family of God. I'm not asking a mosque to pay our rent here, right? God says this will be The house of the Lord will take care of these things. That's part of it. But but more of this is about the character of God, of God's generosity. This is more of what Solomon speaks. The one who gives out freely generosity-wise just has the heart of God because God is generous. He lavishes the world with his grace. The third is faith because it takes faith to give. Because when you say, man, this person needs my help, I got a hundred bucks here. If I give them 50, I only have 50 left. Yeah, can't do it. And that happens. It's happened to everyone. I'm sure everyone in this room has at times thought about doing it, and then and later you'll feel worse more when you quench the spirit, of, if, the, if it's the Lord. I'm not saying that every time a person gives everything, there's times where God clearly says, don't give to that, you know? We're going to go spend that on drugs, or this might be the case. And there's situations in those, in those areas where the Spirit will say, no, no. But it takes faith to be a giver. It really does. I mean, because we, we depend on resources. We, we, we send dominion dollars. We don't send them a bushel of corn, you know, right? Hey, we thought we'd just send you whatever we got, you know. this work? So we understand that it takes faith. But God designed it that way. He, everything in the Christian life will take faith. If I say this, this person might never like me again. That's true, but they might get saved. We'll get to that too. Uh, the fourth is gratitude. Gratitude for the graciousness of God towards us, but also ultimately the gratitude of salvation that Jesus gave his life. So if Jesus gave his life, and Jesus says, now I want you to be a giver, it's kind of hard to look back and say, you know, what have you done for me? He looks back and says, well, I shed my blood. I'm just asking you to now be a faithful giver back to the kingdom of God, because this is my desire to reach the world. So Gratitude. And then the last one is compassion. Jesus had compassion for the multitudes, didn't he? He wants, it, our giving should never be begrudging, but joyful, and we really should have, as we grow Lord, more compassion for people. That there would be a time, and you can be saved for sure and have a moment where you passed on the other side like the, like the, the priest and the, and the Levite, and God can get a hold of you and say, don't do that anymore. You may not be able to do everything, but you can do something. Something's better than nothing. Because sometimes when people just, you know, I've done things for people that did not meet their total need, but you know what? It brought a smile to their face, and they found out that somebody cared. And you wouldn't believe what just when people find out someone cares does for them. If, they, if their need is 10,000, and you say, hey, I can't, I, all I can do this, but here's a gift card, and I want you to... You wouldn't believe it. it. Just because it doesn't solve the whole need doesn't mean that it doesn't... go, Because God will take that and multiply it, we'll get to that too. Compassion and gratitude, they kind of go together. Listen to this poem. I didn't write this poem, but um, I think it conveys uh, compassion and gratitude together. Today I stood at my window and cursed the pouring rain. Today, a desperate farmer prayed for his fields of grain. My weekend plans are ruined, it almost makes me cry, while the farmer lifts his arms and blesses the gray and cloudy sky. The alarm went off on Monday, and I curse my work routine. Next door, a laid-off mechanic feels the empty pockets of his jeans. I can't wait for my vacation, some time to take from me. He doesn't know tonight how he'll feed his family. I curse my leaky roof and the grass I need to mow. A homeless man checks for change walking down Skid Row. I need a new car. Mine is outdated and really getting old. He huddles in a doorway seeking shelter from the cold. With blessings I'm surrounded, the rain, a job, a home, though my eyes are often blinded by the things I think I own. That I think I own. God says you don't own anything. You're renting it if you will, from me. I can cause it to be gone in a New York second. But he says, oh, remember Jesus said, open up your eyes. The fields are white unto harvest. Don't you see that Jesus said there's a whole world out there that I want you to care about and you're whining and complaining because this isn't right and this isn't right. The longer I'm saved, the more I learn everything God allows in my life, many of things I don't enjoy when they first roll down the hill, is all about my response to them. That's all. It's always about my response to them. It's not anything else. God says, I'm shaping you, but you're going to be way better off when I'm done. Remember in the ministry of Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000, which was more like ten to 15,000, because it's 5,000 men plus women and children, but somewhere in the neighborhood of ten to 15,000 people Jesus fed. And it's the only miracle mentioned in all four Gospels. The only miracle mentioned all four of the gospels. And there was this young boy who had two fish and five barley loaves, and barley loaves were the kind of the lowest end of, you know, it it was the low end grain. So this was a this was a Taco Bell kind of meal. You know, this was not Arby's, you know, which cost like 80 bucks for a family of four, but you know, which I still don't understand where they get the pricing structure. But anyway, sorry, Arby's. We still like you. But what if he had held on to it? What if he, 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 you know, hey, does anyone have anything that Jesus can use? He's like, hold on a second. If I give this lunch, what am I going to eat? If I give him the lunch, my mom made me a lunch. So, no, I'm doing fine over here, just kind of chilling out. What if he held on to it? What will I eat? But he gave it to Jesus anyway. And Jesus multiplied it by the thousands. Thousands. Do you realize what God wants to do with little Calvary Half of Richmond? He wants to multiply it by the thousands. So I don't make much. He's not, he doesn't care about that. This boy didn't have much. He esteemed, but what this boy he esteemed the authority of Jesus. He held Jesus. He recognized the authority of Jesus. We have a lot of Christians who still don't recognize that God's in charge of their life. They still think they're in charge of their life. This little boy had just met him and says, it's yours. He gave it to Jesus. And I think he trusted Jesus maybe more than all the adults there. Because I don't know how many adults would have produced it. I think a lot of adults would have told the kid, quiet, don't tell anyone we have this. Do not tell him we have a meal. We're going to leave here in a few minutes and eat it together. We're going to break a little piece of the fish off and give everybody a little piece of fish. Everybody gets a little piece of meat. That's it. We're not telling anybody. This boy's like, all right, here you go. Adults would have said, you, what are you thinking? But I think he trusted Jesus more. A lot of times kids have way more faith than Adults. Jesus said, You better become like these little children if you want to come into the kingdom of God. They have faith. And maybe more than the adults, he actually understood that it belonged to Jesus. He actually understood that. Well, it's not really mine anyway, because if he created stars, I guess he created fish too. I guess if he owns the grain fields, he owns the barley loaves. So, yeah. I don't know what it processed, but he gives it to Jesus. This small amount. Uh, you know, small amount food-wise, but also small amount dollar-wise. I mean, it wasn't much in the way of value, but it did the miraculous. And by the way, the dollar value or the dollar amount is never impressive to God. Someone writing a million-dollar check is not impressive to God. Not impressive. He said the widow that gave the little mite way more than everybody else there. The amount is relative to what someone has and relative to the faith exercised. Does that make sense? The amount is relative to what we have and the faith that is exercised. And the same goes for generosity. Giving an old shirt you're never going to wear, have never wear, don't even like the shirt to goodwill is not generosity. Here, goodwill, take all my junk. Take the stuff that we really don't like. It's out of style, we wouldn't wear this in a million years, give it to everybody else. I even, I, I refuse to give goodwill like stuff that looks junky and is really my junk. If it's junk, it's going to the dumpster. If it's quality, then I'll give it to goodwill. But otherwise, it's not generosity anyway to give that kind of stuff. Generosity is from the heart, isn't it? It's genuine, it's sincere. If you've given your life to God, the giving of uh, financial resources and possessions will follow. But God promises here in these verses, look at these verses, there's one who scatters, yet increases more. God says, you do your part, give me time, I'll take care of your needs. But you're going to have to walk a little bit of faith. You're going to have to grow in compassion. You're going to have to grow in gratitude. And when I see those things budding, and only when I can trust you with more, I will give you more. I'll never forget, I was riding down, I think it was the Florida Turnpike. I was still in college. I've, I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. Because it, it, it was one of those seminal monuments for me. You know, I had a ton of college debt, hadn't even finished college yet. I was like $24,000 for the college debt, which today the college kids say, hey, I wish mine was only 24000 It's like $78,000 a day for some, some of the things that people take out. But me and my wife, you know, we had only been married... Short time, we'd just gotten saved. We were only about three months saved. At that time, we were only about $60,000 in debt. We ended up being about $80,000 in debt before the Lord turned it all around. But I'll never forget, I'm riding down the road, and I hear Dr. Tony Evans preaching on the radio. And he's talking, yeah, I talked to couples about, about finances. Dr. Evans, we're in debt. We're in this. We're in that. Best start giving. And that, that phrase stuck in my mind for years to come. And, and the Lord just took that one little thing and planted it in my mind. And then when I would study the word and I would find a verse and something, and God just started speaking and say, this is your way out. Learn to love and give back to me. And God took care of all that. A few years, debt was completely gone. Now, uh, he, he, his plan was for not for me to continue adding wealth. He said, no, no I'm going to have you be go, go be a pastor. But I'm saying that God was saying, and he's still saying, to anyone that's listening, when you're generous, verse 25, the generous soul will be made rich, I'll make sure I take care of you. Verse 26 says, the people will curse him who withholds grain. God doesn't want us to be the people. People should not look at Christians as the stingy ones. And again, I say this every now and then, if you go to Calvary Chapel, and you give lousy tips, please don't tell anybody you go to Calvary Chapel when you're at the restaurant, right? Here's that $2 on an $88 chip. You know, please tell them you don't go to church. You know, that would be a lie. She so can't say that either. Just don't tell them you go here because we should be known as generous people. And If you're going somewhere, I can't really afford to give my then you probably shouldn't be eating there. That's a different story altogether. That's a different stewardship topic. So we want to be uh, sincere in our generosity, but, but again, it has to be from these areas. It has to be from obedience. It has to, once we understand that God is not against us, he is for us. He's going to bless us. And not necessarily wealthy, but the needs will be rich in many other ways. Um, what, if, what if the way God wants to bless the person, say, so, hey, you kept giving to me, you're not going to spend month after month doctor visit after doctor visit. God chooses that way. There's a lot of ways God can bless you. Hey, by the way, your vehicle is going to last a long time, like the sandals that wouldn't wear out for the children of Israel. God says, if you're okay, and you're okay, I'll, I'll scratch the car payment, you stay right there, I'll take care of the vehicle. There's a lot of ways. I'm just giving you ideas. I mean, God can handle many things many different ways, but he still is multiplying, he's still dividing now, the next thing we want to move on here, verse 27. He who earnestly seeks good finds favor, but trouble will come to him who seeks evil. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Go ahead and pull up the next one there and go one more. Genuinely seeking, if you're taking um, notes, genuinely seeking is our next point here. Um, Christian. I ask all of us this question. I have to ask myself the same question. Are we earnestly seeking the Lord? He, he who earnestly seeks good finds favor. God always, we can, we can um, fool other people, but we can never fool God. He looks deep in the heart of where we're really at. So God knows if we're halfway in it, half job, You know, kind of Luke, Jesus, remember Laodicea, said, You're lukewarm. You got a lot of cold water in there, a little bit of hot water, and it's not, you're not hot for me. You don't really earnestly seek me. Does our time in the Word, does our time in prayer, does our time in worship, does our time in fellowship, does our life of discipleship, Do these things bear out that we're earnestly seeking the Lord? What does the Holy Spirit say to you? Because I'm nobody's judge or jury. I have to have the Holy Spirit speak to me personally. Holy Spirit, seek me, search me, know where I'm really at, and just show me those areas that I'm withholding. I'm not really seeking you. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those that hunger and thirst. Thirst for righteousness. If you you can say that, you know, if I'm honest before the Lord, I do not hunger and thirst for righteousness at all. I hunger and thirst for a lot of things. I'm hunger and thirst for something I want to achieve or something I want to get done or something that's a big, important thing to me, but I do not hunger and thirst for righteousness. Then you need to just spend time with the Lord, pray and say, Lord, give me a return thirst and hunger for your ways. God's not disappointed when we ask him to reignite the hunger thirst. That's just something that's going to have to happen. We have, I have to go back to the Lord many times and say, make me thirsty again for the things of the Lord. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? If you're not thirsty, the Holy Spirit will remind you you're not thirsty. And he's the very one that says, now you have to go back and be close enough to the fire of God that you'll get thirsty. You ever been near a fire? You start to dehydrate. And the very fire of God that makes you thirsty is also where the river of water flows out. Now, it's a strange thing that the very throne of God is full of, you know, it can be the fire that ignites, but it also, as we see in the, in the book of Ezekiel, from the throne a river flows out. he will make you thirsty, but also quench the thirst. But then rivers of living water will flow through us. And when you think about what you really live for day in and day out, what I really live for day in and day out. What is our mind focused on? If we look back at about a 24-hour day, what 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 were our thoughts? Where are we really at? What is the focus of our life? Is it Jesus above everything else? Is it his goodness? Is it his righteousness? Is it his will? Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What are we really trusting in? Look at the passage here. He who earnestly seeks good finds favor, uh, but evil will come on him who seeks evil. Verse 28, he who trusts in his riches will fall. Not might fall, he who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Verse 27, 28, as well as the very words of Jesus himself and his teaching make clear that those who seek him above everything else will find the favor of the Lord and will actually flourish in their faith. Isn't that great to know? This is a promise. You will absolutely, if you want the favor of God and you want to flourish, all you have to do is say, Lord, I'm going to seek you above everything else. Case closed. It won't happen overnight. But you'll plow through things eventually that other people would be bogged down and destroyed by those that follow the course of this world the complete opposite in some cases now but in all cases later anyone that seeks the world's fulfillment and trust in the world or trust themselves will fall it's just a matter of time that's what the world uh, is focused on in Matthew chapter 6 verses 31 to 35 now i quote this verse often but i wanted to quote it in the context in the full context of what jesus says here jesus says therefore Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? And I love what Jesus says here. For after these things, the Gentiles, or he's saying the world at large, it's not Gentile blood, but this was a a vernacular of saying the whole world. Uh, He goes, these are things the world seeks. They're always worried about what they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, and what they're going to wear. He said, for your heavenly father, no, he knows that you need these things. He doesn't know that you need $200 shoes, but he knows you need a pair of shoes. I saw a picture. said Someone had put it on Facebook or something. But it showed a pair of Air Jordans. They were $220. It said, with these pair of shoes, you can start a corporation, buy meals for so many people. It was like this long list of things you could do with $220. Or you could buy these and complain that you don't have any money, right? So these, are, these are some of the options. But, but Jesus said, look, I, I know where you have real needs, and I don't want you like the world to seek after the thing that just bring you into more bondage, and more worry, and more stress, and more fretting, and all these things. But seek first the King of God and His righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Our job as a church, your job individually, our job as individual families, and then our job as church family, is just to do the work of God, and we'll be so busy seeking God, we won't have time to worry about everything else. And then when you look up, things just spring up that are good. That's the way it works. You know, you can't just sit out there and watch and say, come on, grass, come on. I know you can do it. I know. You know, you can't worry about that. Jesus said, that's not your job. I've got that stuff. You seek me, seek me, seek me. But how does seeking me work all this? It's, It's in the spiritual realm. It's in the spiritual realm that I work all that out. That's, isn't that really cool that God does things in the spiritual realm? He doesn't care that you don't know how it can be done. In fact, He likes doing the things we don't know how can be done, right? W. H. Griffith Thomas said this. And this is about uh, you know verse twenty-eight. He who trusts in his riches. W. H. Griffith Thomas said, making money. Is necessary for daily living, but making money is apt to degenerate into money-loving, and then deceitfulness of riches enters in and spoils our spiritual life. Isn't that true? I'd add here that trusting um, in money is just as deceitful as loving money. Trusting of money is just as deceitful as loving of money, and they go hand in hand. And sadly, I've seen this way too many times. I've seen it a lot of times over the years where God blesses a Christian. They used to not have two nickels to rub together. God blesses them, and they end up falling in love with the blessing instead of the one who gave it to them. And then all of a sudden, they have no time for God. They have no time for this. They uh, you know, just have more important things to do. And what was once a really generous person that wanted to see people saved doesn't care about any of that stuff anymore because they've really done well for themselves. And God was the one that blessed them in the first place. And it all goes exactly as he said, it spoils the spiritual life. But Jesus said this deception is as sure to fail as his faithfulness is as sure to sustain. So again, trusting in riches or trusting in money is just as much of a failed, a guarantee fail, as it is that we can trust in the faithfulness of Jesus to sustain us. And he'll do more than sustain us, though. It says here, that we'll flourish. I wouldn't leave what I'm doing, pastoring this church, for a million-dollar job. If someone walked up to me right after the service and said, I'll bet you, I'm taking you up on it. You sign here, you get a million-dollar job, and you can actually, here's, and here's, here's how Satan would do you know, you could pay, You could help pay for a lot of churches. You could help a lot of pastors. You could help a lot of missionaries. Do blah, blah 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 blah. But I'd be outside the will of God, outside the protection of God. Yeah. And I would be outside of anything. Money can't offer us anything. It can't. And even if I said I'd do all those other things, I'd be self-deceiving myself, and I'd be leaning, as the scripture say, to my own understanding. Trust not your own understanding, the Bible says. I think that many people, because they're not a pastor, or they're not a missionary, or they're not some full-time Christian worker, they can say, well, I've never walked away from serving God uh, to do something else. And yet many, many people in the American church, many people in the American church of all denominations have taken little step, little step, little step, little step, little step. That's how close they used to be, God. Here they are today. They're just like Lot, and one day they're living right smack in the middle of Sodom. And they've lost their families, and their kids don't want anything to do with God. And they say, well, dad never really cared, or mom never really cared. Well, how do you know? Well, they went to church. Yeah, but yeah, they went to church. I've heard so many college-age kids say, my parents' faith was a farce. My dad didn't even read to us, didn't pray to us, didn't do this, didn't do that. He lost his temper. Did, you know, the faith wasn't genuine, and the kids can see it. And that's how Lot lost his whole family. Now, my dad was way more interested in his business or this or that. He didn't care about God. I've had, I've had young people tell me this. It's hard, to, it's hard to tell them. No, that's not the case when sometimes they can point to things that are real. And so many Christians, little by little, no, I don't really trust in riches. Yes, they do. Little by little, they've walked away and they're further away and they're further away and they're further away. And he says, he who trusts in riches will fall. just like building on sand. Jesus said, you build on sand, eventually a storm will rock that sandbar. But if you're built on the rock, you won't fall. This um, verse 29 where it says, he who troubles his own house will inherit the wind. This reminds me of Paul's warning uh, when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith. Now, he's, he, he's clearly speaking to the church here because he said some have strayed from the faith. These are people that used to be in love with Jesus but are no longer in love with Jesus anymore. They've strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves with many... Sorry, and a lot of people say, well, I'm not greedy. Greedy is, uh, greedy is that movie with Michael Douglas and, uh, years ago. You know, that Greed. Greed is for millionaires really? I think Jesus would look at a lot of Christ and say, you lavish yourself. And he said in Matthew chapter 25, I was in prison, you didn't visit me. I was poor and naked, you didn't come see me. You didn't help. You had another Frappuccino, you had another this, had another that, had another this, had another that, had another this, had another that. And all the while, there's people dying, starving, and all these things. And he's like, you could have been leading your family, in the ways of me. He says, he who troubles his own house, how would a, how would a Christian trouble their own house? They would, especially dads, because they, they're kind of the cover of the house. If a father says, you know what, I'm not going to be the spiritual leader here. I got bigger things, fish to fry, he'll trouble his own house. But see, trouble in your own house doesn't show, just like cracks in the foundation, it doesn't show up when they're 12. It shows up when they're 28. When they're thirty-two, I have to firm up my house today. I can't wait till my girls are thirty to say, "Oh man, I blew that. I should have put Jesus first." That's what he's saying. These are the things that will uh, inherit the wind, and the fool will be servant, and so the fool will be servant to the wise at heart. And you know, someday, uh, of course, the unsaved world will uh, eventually, in the millennial reign of Christ, will be servant to. Uh, the church and those that are saved. But there is a flourishing God promises. I love one of my favorite verses, Psalm 92, 12. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. You ever seen the cedar in Lebanon? That's what they built. You know, a lot of the um, parts of the temple were built from the cedar trees there. Huge, strong trees. You ever seen a palm tree? Uh, You know, in hurricanes, they just do like this. They bend over, and when they're done, (sniffs) if you want to be able to survive storms, Get yourself planted in Jesus. Cedar trees and palm trees. Palm trees, you know, the Bahamas will hit the Category 5. Bam, right back up. It's great. But that's what the... When you you and I uh, are seeking the Lord and we're deep, we have deep roots in Christ, it doesn't mean we don't get storms. It means we come through storms. That's what Jesus took the apostles through the storms on purpose to show them that. We're not, we're not shipwrecked and destroyed by them. we keep our eyes on Jesus, we'll be, like a, we'll be like a tree. Let's take a look at the last section here as we come to our final sowing and reaping. Um, starting in verse uh, 30 here, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, but he who wins souls is wise, That the righteous will be recompensed in the earth, how much more the ungodly and sinner. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Last section here, sowing. For God so loved the the world that he gave. He gave. Now, of course, he never would. God would never, Jesus would never do this, but because the heart of Christ and the heart of the Father are one, but we'd be doomed if Christ had refused to come and bring the gospel. Jesus said, I'm not coming, I'm holy, they are wicked. Of course, he wouldn't do that, but he, you know, imagine if he did. If he would refused to come and proclaim the gospel, if he would refused to come and bring the gospel, if he refused to come and be the gospel, because Jesus is the gospel. And Jesus came down and he sowed himself into the earth, didn't he? First he sowed himself in the earth in his ministry, uh, then he sowed himself ultimately into the earth in three days in the grave, before that sowing shattered sin and death permanently, forever. And this is why the gospel means good news. That's the Greek word for gospel, just so you know. If you ever want to write it out, that's, that's what you do right there. The uh, gospel means good news. The Greek word for gospel is uangelizo, Well, That doesn't tell me much. Well, what it means is go ahead and hit the build on that. I see this. It means good news or to bring glad tidings. That's what the word gospel means. Luangalizo. To bring good news or to bring glad tidings. The terms glad tidings, listen up, you're gonna like these last last few minutes. They're really good stuff here. The terms glad tidings and the gospel are essentially interchangeable. So when you see the word glad, you see the phrase glad tidings or gospel, they're interchangeable terms. Glad tidings and gospel essentially mean the same thing. In the Old Testament, you won't see the word gospel in the Old Testament, uh, but the reference in the Old Testament is glad tidings. That's why in the New Testament, you can use either gold, glad tidings or uh, gospel. In the Old Testament the reference is glad tidings, which communicated Always communicated wherever glad tidings was mentioned, in the Old Testament it always meant good news. Again, a synonymous one another. Most often, in the Old Tid- uh, Old Testament glad tidings would refer not only to good news, but even more specifically, in the Old Testament, when glad tidings is mentioned, most often it refers to the joyful tidings of God's graciousness. In the Old Testament that the glad tidings referred to the joyful tidings of God's graciousness and his kindness, and very often specifically to messianic blessings, which would be foretelling to who? Jesus, which is the whole gospel good news, when it's magnified. The root of the Greek word for gospel is similar to the word ungalizo, but it's ungalos, ungalos, or angalos. Angelos, which means messenger, which is where we get the word angel. You can actually pop that up. So, ungalos is angelos, where we get the word angel, drop the uh, O-S off, and you have A-N-G-E-L, angel. So, the word we have for messenger is angel. Now, this root word uh, went from Greek to the vulgar Latin, Vulgar doesn't mean vulgar the way we mean it today. It meant common. So it meant to the common Latin. And the common Latin, from that, branched out into the Latin origin languages, as which we now know today as the Romance languages. Languages like Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, Romanian. These are all the Latin derivative languages or the Romance languages, which is why Los Angeles means the messengers. Or the angels, why you have the California angels, right? Los Angeles is Spanish for the messengers or the angels. That's what it means. So every time you hear someone say Los Angeles, you can give them a Bible study. Just say, hey, can I tell you a little bit about your city? (laughs) Your city has the gospel built in. Los Angeles needs the gospel too, right? Now, we're not not angels, because angels also has a wider meaning than just messengers. So understand that in entomology, you also have a wider meaning than just angels. But we're most definitely called to be messengers, even though we're not angels. We're definitely called to be messengers. Jesus had to go on all the world and preach the gospel or glad tidings to all the world. So we're to be messengers of that. And the suffering, the sacrifice, and the sowing that Christ submitted... Of the world, leaves us with a gospel that's infinitely greater news, more extraordinary news, more joyful news than all the good news that every person has ever heard in the history of the world combined. Take every good report you've ever had from every person from Adam and Eve until now, it's not better news than once of the gospel being presented. And yet we're often like this, silent. Not a thing to be said. He who wins souls is wise, says right there in the text, Romans ten fourteen through fifteen. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how shall they believe in him on whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written in the book of Isaiah, how beautiful are those who preach the gospel or glad tidings of peace, who bring glad tidings or gospel of good things. Isaiah wrote that before his messianic and nature say, how will they hear the gospel unless someone says it? Unless people preach it? Unless there's a John the Baptist and then a Paul and then a John and then you and I. I mentioned at the beginning that the wider context of these verses is for us to be wholly given over to God, not just in finances but every area, our time, our talent, our treasure. As Romans 12 Tells us we're to be living sacrifices. And you can uh, pull up the last one here. Now, w- what's the promise here? The fruit of righteousness is the tree of life. He who wins souls is wise. The righteous will be recompensed on the earth. If we are wholly given over to God, we will have fruitful lives. The fruit of the righteous tree of life. We will never, um, we'll never consistently share the gospel. We'll never consistently love people. We'll never be giving the gospel out unless we're really loving and surrendered and obedient to Christ. If we're not in love with Jesus, we will not present the gospel to people. It just will not happen close to Jesus, you're close to his heart. But when we commit to his lordship, his heart for the lost and his heart for discipleship becomes our heart. You don't have to worry about making yourself this way. Just get close to the Lord. Just get close to the Lord. He'll make that happen. And notice the language of verse 30. Understand that surrendered life produces righteousness. Surrendered life produces righteousness. What is righteousness? Right standing with God Christ-likeness in our attitude and our mindset and our desires. This, in turn, produces fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All this is life-giving to us, and it's life-giving to people we impact. And the work of the fruit of the Spirit will compel us to invest in souls. You can read this verse, just bear with me, one Last little bit here. Listen, read the verse reverse. And he who wins souls is wise. You could read it reverse. The wise one wins souls. Who are the wise? Well, the wise are the righteous. The wise are the people that are spirit-filled. The wise are the people that are in love with Christ. That's who the wise people are. The wise men were called wise because they traveled afar to bring their lives to Jesus. That's why they were called the wise men, more than they, they had the wise. Yes, they were, but I mean, the spiritual implication was that their wisdom was that they gave all to Jesus. So the wise will win souls, not just, well, if you win souls, that's a wise thing to do. No, the, no that, that's, that's dumbing down the power of it. Wise will win souls. You can also read the verse this way. If, if you remove wise, he who doesn't win souls is a fool. That's another way of looking at the verse. The opposite is a good way to look at a verse sometimes. Well, we know what it says. What would it be the opposite? He who doesn't win souls is a fool. No, Let me give you another thing it doesn't say. It doesn't say this. He who wins souls has the gift of evangelism. doesn't say that. A lot of Christians say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. That don't know what it said. He who wins souls is wise. It's an investment. This is a decision to say, Jesus, I give my life to you. You'll help me. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody will win souls the same way. You, have football, you know, I like football analogies, right? In a football game, not a lot of people score sometimes. Sometimes quarterback throws touchdowns, running backs, wide receivers, offensive linemen rarely score. Linebackers rarely score. Other people, but they're part of the winning. And God will someday when we stand before the Lord, we can will will give an account where we really part of winning souls. Because you can't. Hey, I can't go to Guatemala. Can you help people go? It's being part of the winning, I can help people get there. Yes. Uh, well, I can't do this. Uh, I can't. Really, go to Bon Air, but can you can you pray over it? I mean, really pray over it, not just some two second prop form prayer, but really pray over it. You're part of you're part of winning souls. There's a lot of ways you can, we can go on down the list. If say Lord, how do, here's the best question: Go to Jesus and say, Lord, how do I become part of winning souls? He'll say, I'm glad you asked. There's things that I have pre before the foundation of the earth, pick for you to be part of this. Not necessarily you're out street witnessing, not necessarily you might not be on the Bonaire team, You might not. There's, but rest assured God will have a place and it will be part of the winning team. So he really will help everybody fulfill this. But our heart has to care. We have to really want to surrender to that. Uh, one more thing on the fruit God produces and the fact that uh, this what he produces in us, um, God will make good on it. In verse, uh, in verse 31, it said, the righteous are recompensed on the earth. Uh, God is going to finish what he started in us. This tree that's mentioned, this tree of life, the righteous, this tree of life, think about it this way. The finished work of the tree of Calvary, the finished work of the tree of Calvary has birthed in us a tree of life that is watered by the Holy Spirit, and the tree of life in the garden, which was then guarded by the angels, no one could go near it again, we're not at that tree, but the same life-giving that was in that tree has now been put in us because of the tree of Calvary. And we actually have a tree of life we're holding on to, and it's Jesus. And God in Him will make us givers just like Him. Givers of our life, givers of our time, givers of our resources, and then later, and this is what recompense means. Recompense means to be made at peace, complete, and paid. Jesus, when he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in. When he says, uh, Tim, Susie, John, Jane, whatever your name is, here's what's yours now. Recompense means Jesus will give us what he says, your work has been noticed and rewarded in the millennium kingdom and in the ages to come. He says the meek will inherit the earth, but this recompense is when you get what you're paid and you chose evil, he says the reverse is also true. How much more the ungodly and the sinner? Those that say, nope, I'm not following God, I'm not doing it his way, there'll be a pay up for that too. That's not where you want to be, amen? Amen. We can have great impact... And we'll have more joy in doing it by simply saying, Lord, you have all of me.